women's ministry. It's their last meeting for this session as they're going through the book of Ephesians. And so this Tuesday night, I would encourage any of you ladies, whether you've been before or not, to come on out and participate in the women's Bible study this Tuesday night. And then this Wednesday is the last meeting until the fall for the MOPS group. So if you're a part of the mothers of preschoolers, then you'll want to make sure to come out Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock up in the fellowship hall. Also, our junior high group, it's called Ignite. They're having a spaghetti Friday and fellowship night at Todd Beebe's home on this Friday from 6 to 9. And back at the youth table, there are flyers for that. And if you have a junior high, I know they'll enjoy um, coming out and just hanging out with the kids and and, uh, eating spaghetti. Also, we have the Mexico Outreach on Saturday, June 3rd. It's a men's conference down in Tijuana. And if any of you guys would like to go down and help with parking lot or ushering, um, then uh, you can. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer for that. Our food donation box where you can put food in if you want to help people who are having a rough time has been moved from the foyer to over in front of the store. So if you've been looking for that, Uh, And it's a good time to tell you that, by the way, if you ever get to a point where you could just use some extra help, some groceries, um, we always have those available, and they're up behind the church office. If you walk through the fellowship hall, you'll see them in there towards the office, or if you feel better coming in during the week, they'll let you go in there and just pick out some stuff that that would help you out. So please avail yourself of that. Also, on Saturday, June 3rd, up in the fellowship hall, We have a man, um, Sean McDowell, coming and doing a presentation on the Da Vinci Code. And so if uh, you're interested and you'd like to learn a little bit more about the Da Vinci Code, maybe you saw the movie this weekend or you know people who are seeing it, um, this is a great chance to to learn a little bit more about it. And also, we have for our um, Wednesday night youth group. We um, had some, Jerry got some flyers that are kind of little pamphlets on the Da Vinci Code, real informative. And if you'd like, I think there are some back at the youth table. Uh, pick some up on your way out and, or get one and, and it'll, it'll equip you to discuss this. Speaking of our Wednesday night group, uh, it's going really well and, and it's exciting. We're seeing kids getting saved and great things happening. And we have some special little cards that are for the purpose of inviting people, junior high or high school age, to come on Wednesday nights to, to our fellowship. And so if you know kids or uh, if you think you might run into some, just grab some of those cards and take them with you. It's a great opportunity to um, expose kids to hear the gospel and to be around some Christian kids and, and just to have a great time. It's really, really been going well. I think that's all the announcements. Oh, actually, one more thing, and this is a piece of business, and I apologize if you're a visitor and, you know, you think this is weird. We probably do it every week. We never do it, but here's the deal in a nutshell. We talked last week about the fact that, as you know, we've been praying that the Lord would at some point open up an opportunity for us to purchase a place for our church. We pay an enormous amount of rent for this facility, and, well, just in the last couple of weeks, there's a opportunity that opened up on a church that's closing over, uh, over around down here on Moulton. And it's a Christian science church, and they are going out of business or merging with another Christian science church in Irvine. And it's, a, it's an interesting opportunity because they're auctioning it off, and only churches can participate. If you saw what the land is worth from a commercial standpoint, it would be amazing. But there's a restriction on it that it needs to go to a church, which is great. So we put in this last week a silent bid, sealed bid, and we just bid the minimum on the, on the property, which was $5 million. And then the top five people get to go to, a, to an oral bid to auction the thing off. So we ended up making the cut because only two parties have bid on it. And they bid more than we did, by the way, and we don't know how much more. But it's something to keep in prayer. If, if the Lord is in it, boy, it would be wonderful. It, it would be downsizing for our church, but that's always a good thing, and it's a great location and a great facility. And so keep that in prayer this week when you think about it. And uh, the deal is, just so you know, if it, the banks require... Now, if we borrowed the entire amount of money our payment on our loan would be cheaper than what we pay now for rent. So, but it's just a question of if God wants to put that together. And so 
the banks will loan 80%. So what that means for those of you who aren't math students, that we have to come up with a million bucks. And that sounds, you know, but hey, if God is in it, then it'll happen. And just to let you know where we are now, the church has about, I think, a, around a fourth of that, about a quarter of a million dollars that we have right now that we can free up as long as nothing breaks. And, uh, and then another family has offered to match that and have, have said that they would donate that much. So we're halfway there. And, uh, but if it happens, it happens. If not, it's not. It's not going to break my heart. If we don't get it, I'll be happy. I'll go, well, great. God didn't want us to do it. But I always want to be open to what God's doing. So we don't have time for a big fundraising campaign to bring experts in and, and twist and, and turn. Basically, next Sunday, if the money comes in, then, and this can be any combination of if the Lord lays on your heart to give some money for the building, then that's great. Next week, you can just mark that on your check. Or if you want to loan us some money, you can do that too and just put loan. If the, the thing gets auctioned off a week from Thursday, so if it doesn't happen or we don't get enough money, we'll give you your money back. Don't worry, it's not a trick to you know, use money for something else. It'll come right back to you. But we're just going to see. It's kind of laying it out before the Lord and saying, well, God, if this is what you have for us, great. If not, that's fine too. I'm only sharing it with you because I want you to know what's going on. It's your church. It's not mine. So um, if that's what the Lord has and He lays it on your heart, I didn't even mention it before we took the offering because I really want you to pray about it because we really want to know if it's the Lord. So um, keep that in mind and in prayer this week. And whatever happens, if, the, if we have the money or if we don't, We'll take it as the Lord's will. If we win the bid or we don't, we'll take it as the Lord's will. But we just want to be in position for whatever God has for us. And if it's not this, it'll be something better because I really can't believe that God just wants us to, you know, indefinitely pour money down a black hole. So there's, there's that, something for you to pray about. And now on to more important things, Galatians chapter 4. book of Galatians, as we've been studying it for the past uh, few months, is, as you recall, it's Paul writing to a group of churches who had come to the Lord under his ministry, but now some people had come in and convinced these guys, these churches, that, you know, the gospel sounds good, and, you know, Paul told you it's free, you just accept Jesus Christ, and then you're covered, but, you know, there's a little more to it than that. There's a catch. Once you become a Christian, at some point, you need to also become under the law. You need to also become a little bit more religious. You can't just be whatever you want and expect God to forgive you. You need to, at some point, help God out. And for them, that was a return to Old Testament law. Today, there are many people who have the same philosophy. The idea of salvation being free... The idea of it only depending on what God does and not depending on what we do, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds extravagant. And it's just like, no, nah, there's no way. It can't be this easy. Is it, is it really true that God loves me just as much and forgives me just as much no matter what I do, no matter how I act? And you go, that seems so counterintuitive. The reason is because well, every one of us naturally has the propensity to be religious. Every person in this world, in one way or another, has always felt the need to do something to try to get to God. You go back to the Tower of Babel where they built this big tower to unite everyone, and it said they built it because they wanted its top to reach the heavens. Now, they, didn't, they weren't that stupid. They didn't think that they could build a tower tall enough to reach heaven, but on the top of that tower was probably, it was probably one of those ziggurats where, like the one over in Laguna Niguel, where at the top it's all about astrology and somehow you get in touch with God. But people have always made up religions. People have always tried to come up with an artificial set of rules in order to function. Now, this stands in somewhat in contrast to the law. The Old Testament law, you say, but wait a minute, people didn't make that up. God made it up. And yes, that's true to a degree. But when you look at what the people ended up doing with it, you'd realize 
man, most of what I think of as the law really didn't even come from the law. It came from man's application of the law. But the other thing about the Old Testament law is it was designed to become obsolete. It had planned obsolescence built into it. It was a picture of the one who would come, Jesus Christ, and die for our sins and forgive us of our sins and draw us into a relationship with the Father. It was a picture of that, and it was meant to be only that. And the rules were there to show you, to remind us that we can't follow the rules. And the truth is, everything that you've ever done, everything that religion has ever done, the, the message that comes through loud and clear is, hey, if we're depending on our own efforts, we're in trouble. We cannot follow the rules. Every rule, no matter how simple the rule is, make the rule, you can't follow it. And that's an important lesson to learn because then we can rely on the Lord. Then we can allow Him to do what He wants to do. And so, as Paul, throughout this book so far, has been laying out a defense of the gospel, saying that if it's about what you can do, if it's all about your obedience, then it's not good news anymore. It becomes bad news. In fact, if you take the gospel and you add anything else to it, any man-made requirements, any attempts to try to be something that you're not, you fail. It's not good anymore. We can't do it. He's, he's laid out such a powerful argument for this, as we've seen. And now as he's transitioning, we're going to see over the next weeks that he begins to apply the truth of the gospel of grace. And yet here at the end of chapter 4, beginning with verse 21, we see as one final pitch something that's not so much of an argument as it is an illustration or an allegory. He's saying, look... I've laid it out for you. I've told you what I think you need to understand and what you need to know. But let me tell you a story, you who are so in love with the law. Let me tell you a story that comes from the book of the law, and it serves as a perfect illustration of exactly what I'm talking about. And so, beginning with verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This story about Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, you probably remember the story, but I'll go over it quickly, just refresh your memory. Genesis, God had promised Abraham that he was going to bring a seed forth from him, that he and Sarah would have a child, and through that, that all the nations of the world would be blessed, that his descendants would be like the stars in heaven, the sands on the seashore. An incredible promise, especially to a pretty old guy. But as he got older, Sarah got older too, and it just, she never got pregnant. And it just didn't seem very likely that that was going to happen. And so in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah concocted a plan. Seems like a crazy thing to do, but apparently it, there were some legal precedents for it in those days, in their culture at least, that they would do this. She said, look, I'm shriveled up. This isn't going to happen for me, but Abraham, I have an idea. I've got a a maid that works for me, a servant girl, 
named Hagar, an Egyptian, and she's young. So how about this? You sleep with her, she gets pregnant and has a baby. I'll be there to catch the baby. I'll adopt the baby, and then God can bless. God can fulfill His promises. Abraham, not one to argue with his wife, goes, okay, (laughs) if you insist. Well, Hagar got pregnant and had this child, Ishmael. But God said, man, you guys, you don't get it. That's not what I had in mind. I'm telling you, it's going to be through your wife, Sarah, that you're going to have this child that's going to be the, the, the fountainhead through which all my blessings of the world are going to come. And they were like, well, sorry. I mean, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Well, as you read forward a few chapters, miraculously, Sarah becomes pregnant and has a child, and his name's Isaac. And God said, in Isaac will my seed be called. And so there, in Genesis chapter 21, you see the tension of having two girls in the house with kids, one a bit older, one who, you know, he's a son of Abraham too. His name was Ishmael. And then here's Isaac, the miracle baby, the child of the promise. The only miracle about Ishmael being born was that Sarah let it happen. But the miracle of Isaac being born to a, to a woman who was already way past the change of life, that was amazing. And so Isaac the child of promise, the one who was the ultimate fulfillment of what God wanted to do. And there was resentment between the two, obviously. And as a result, there in Genesis 16, and what's quoted uh, here in verse 30, Sarah finally tells Abraham, throw Hagar out. Throw Ishmael out. This isn't going to work. Get him out of here. And Abraham was upset about it at first. He goes, wait a minute, that's my son. But God told him, no, she's right, this isn't going to mix. Kick him out. Now, it wasn't that God didn't care about Hagar or Ishmael. God took care of them and had certain blessings that he pronounced on them. But when it came to his plan for how he was going to bring in Messiah, it was very simple. He was going to do it. He was going to do it miraculously, and he was going to do it through Isaac. And so this is the story that Paul appeals to as he's illustrating the difference, the difference between flesh and spirit, the difference between bondage and freedom, the difference between what you can do and what God promises to do, the old covenant, the new covenant. And he he knows that it's important for everyone to understand the difference. What is the flesh ultimately? How does How does Hagar and Ishmael, that whole plan, what's that depict for us? It's a perfect reminder of how we try to help God out. How we think somehow that God has a great idea, but he doesn't really know about the details. And so we think, you know, God knows what he wants to do, but when he wants it done, he tells me, and I figure out a way to get it done. And so often we live our lives that way, striving, trying to make something happen. Like Abraham, well, hey, this is, I guess this could be sort of a fulfillment of God's promise. It's close enough. But you know, the message of the gospel is God doesn't need our help. The truth is that He wants to do it for us. He wants to give to us. He's not trying to take from us. God doesn't need our help. And when we try to help him out, we get in the way so often because we come up with ideas that he would never come up with. Well, then why do anything at all? No. See, God wants us to work with him. He wants us to walk with him. He wants it to be a beautiful relationship that we have. But at the same time, he doesn't need our creativity in order to compromise what he says in order to bring about what we think is really in his best interest. In reality, he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to understand fully and completely that he wants to do a miracle, that he makes a promise and he will fulfill it, and we don't have to make that happen. It's just not necessary. And that's what happens when people opt for religion instead of the gospel. 
Now you go, you have these warm religious feelings and you want to be close to God. And so you think, man, if I will do certain things, I bet God's going to really be relieved. I bet he's going to be really happy. It's going to make him feel good. On the other hand, if I don't do the things that he wants me to do, poor God, he's not going to know what to do. He's going to be crushed and heartbroken. And so often we hear people use those kinds of terms about God, and it's so out of touch with who God really is. See, God is in control. He's the Lord. And he doesn't need us to advise him. God doesn't say, you know, what you need to do is get a brain trust of people together and have them really wrestle with these issues and figure out what we really ought to do. Because I have a beautiful idea, but boy, I'll tell you, I don't know if my creativity can, can cash the check that my grace is writing. You know, I need your help. God doesn't need our help. That's the good news, because if he did need our help, he would be in trouble. His plans would be dead in the water. But we so often live our lives in the flesh. As slaves, we so often obey God because we have to, because we're afraid not to. We so often do what we do, somehow, well, we act like slaves. We act like, I have no choice in the matter. Hey, you do have a choice in the matter. In fact, Jesus Christ came and died so that you would have choice, so that he could set you free. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. And so this picture of, on the one hand, the old covenant, do this, 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 and this. And if you do, then I will do this, this, and this. Learn the lesson of the old covenant. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem with it is you. You can't keep it. You can't follow the rules. You can't do what you want to do. What your, every intention may be good, but it doesn't work ultimately. Old covenant is dead. The good news is, the gospel is, God has done it for you, and he will save you simply on the basis of his righteousness. He will clothe you in his righteousness. And if you mess up today, if you're under the law and you mess up today, oh man, you're in big trouble. Because you can't take that back. One mistake and you're done. But today, if you're saved by grace, if it's all about Him, then you mess up today. This question is, was it depending on you? If it wasn't, then good news. God has forgiven you, cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Now, as he talks about this, in, in verse 24, he says, these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which is over there in Saudi Arabia where the law was given, gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So he's going, okay, Mount Sinai, Hagar, bondage, slavery. And he says, uh, it's in Arabia. And then he says, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Now, this is kind of strange because he's saying, here's an analogy On the one hand, and here's what we would expect. He would go, on the one hand, you've got those Arabs. You've got those people in Arabia. You've got Hagar and Ishmael. Oh, yuck, they're over here. Over here, Jerusalem, God's chosen people. But he doesn't say that. He says, you know what? It's the same. Those people who would try to follow the law, even though they have that revelation of God, even though their heart's desire is to really want to walk with God, they're in the same boat as Ishmael. Earthly Jerusalem, Jerusalem that now is, it corresponds to Mount Sinai and the law. There's no difference. But as he says, what we're looking forward to, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. It's God's heavenly program, the the new Jerusalem, that which we look forward to as the culmination of all that God has done. Hey, that's where reality steps in. That's where forgiveness is ultimately realized. And he's going, it doesn't matter if your religion is what the religion is in Arabia or what the religion is in Jerusalem. It's not about religion. But there's something that God is going to do that comes down from heaven, and that's going to make all the difference in the world. And that's the gospel. And you listen to the gospel sometimes and you just go, it's too good to be true. 
I can't believe this. And that's why in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54. Now, if you remember before Isaiah 54, oddly enough, is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, my favorite chapter in the Bible, is all about Jesus and Him coming and dying, taking our sins upon Himself. Us like sheep gone astray, turned everyone to His own way. God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And that substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 53, including all of His suffering and everything. It's a beautiful chapter. And right after that photograph of Jesus in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54 and 55 begin to talk about the day when Jesus comes back and fixes everything, that kingdom age. And that discussion is introduced right there in the beginning of Isaiah 54 by saying this, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Hey, celebrate even though you haven't had offspring. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. Hey, you're not in labor, but act like you are. Go ahead and let me have it. Yell a little bit. Four, the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. In other words, you didn't get started that great. It's, it's not looking good for you. Like Sarah, you give up. Somebody says that you can still be fruitful and you laugh. That's why she named the kid Isaac. It means laughter. But there's a promise that goes behind everything that seems impossible. And so his point is, and Isaiah's point too is, hey, it doesn't matter how things are looking right now. God has a plan. And he will fulfill his plan because he's as good as his word. And he doesn't really need your help. He, doesn't, he isn't really asking for advice. He isn't counting on you and depending on you. It's so sad. There are people today who really believe that God absolutely needs us or, or he's in trouble. There are those whose theology dictates that the job of the Christians is to take over this world for Jesus, that we need to usher in the kingdom of God. Hey, this is the only kingdom we're ever going to have. Now we better get busy. Now what happens with that kind of a mentality? Well, you have, as we did years back, an evangelist who decided that God told him he's going to be the next president of the United States. And so he gets up there, and instead of preaching the gospel, he starts preaching politics. He starts trying to convince people that he's, man, when he becomes president, oh, it's going to fix everything. Now, I don't know, maybe if he had become president, we'd be better off, I don't know. But the fact is, it didn't work. Nobody voted for him. And so you go, uh-oh, that was God ushering in the kingdom. What do we do now? And I believe that within well-meaning Christianity. There's such a feeling that somehow we need to get organized and make it happen. We've got to get people to vote the right way. We've got to get the right candidates, and we've got to change those laws, and we've got to have the Ten Commandments hung up everywhere, and we've got to... And, and really what's behind that is the feeling that if this world is going to be fixed, we better do it. We're going to have to make it happen, or it isn't going to happen. Now, all of the people who have these agendas, they're good people, and hey, if God has called you to, to have your, you know, the calling on your life to register voters and things like that, hey, great. I would say you do what God tells you to do, but you know what? It doesn't work. I can tell you right now, you're not going to fix this world by getting people to vote, by getting the right candidate in, and an amazing thing happens sometimes. God will allow a candidate to come into office who's just horrible, who's just an awful president. And, and yet God doesn't go, oh, no. And by the way, you can pick whichever president you want as being the one I'm talking about. It's fine. It doesn't matter what your, what your political perspective is. The truth is, you know what? God manages to work through anyone. And sometimes you have the worst president, and God can do some incredible things during that time. See, he isn't limited by us organizing and getting together. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So that's not his agenda, and I don't believe it should be ours ultimately. Our agenda should be, God, you do it, whatever you want to do. Now, does that mean we don't do anything, that we don't vote, or we don't involve ourselves in the process? Of course not. We do what God shows us to do. The difference many times is just our attitude. 
Are we panicked? Are we stressed? Are we worried? Are we pushing others? Are we slaves? Because ultimately, when we believe that somehow we need to do it, then we put ourselves in a position of having a huge amount of responsibility on our shoulders. And that responsibility will weigh us down, will tear us apart, will destroy us. And here we will be as Christians doing wonderful things for God, but we're so worn out that people look and they just think it must be miserable to serve God. It must be awful to follow Him. He is indeed such a horrible taskmaster. The difference between a slave and someone who's free sometimes is just one of perspective. Many of you have jobs. Some of you feel blessed to have the job that you have. You maybe went without work for a while and you're so excited when God opens up a door and then you realize, wow, God is using skills and capacities that I have to prepare for the future, to provide for my family, to bless me in so many ways, to give me an opportunity to interact with other people. Oh, I'm so thankful that I have the opportunity to do what I do. There are other people doing the same job and they hate it. They count the minutes until the day's over. They just constantly watch the clock. They can't stand their job. They, they really are just biding their time until that day when they can finally retire. Two people doing the same job, but it's a different heart. It's a different attitude. You can choose to be a slave by doing what you do and doing it because you have to do it. It's one of the differences between a housewife and a, and a maid. They do a lot of the same things, but... Why do they do it? There are many people who start out as a housewife just loving to bless their family and keep things nice and neat and tidy and, and decorated and all that kind of stuff. Somewhere along the road, though, something that you start out doing out of love. And I should say, if you're a house husband, you could do the same thing. Whatever. But... Uh, <laughs> But you can start out doing it out of love and gratitude, and you can end up just feeling like nobody appreciates me. I have to do this. I'm sick of it. And you know, for many of us in our service for God and in our walk with Him, we do the same thing. We somehow transition from being glad to just be there with Him. And because we don't feel appreciated, our heart begins to change. We become resentful. And now it becomes, well, it's about us. We've got to do it or it's not going to get done. I'd suggest sometime maybe what you need to do is just not get it done. Let the house stay messy for a little bit. See what happens. Oh, you know, I know you'll eventually it'll drive you crazy, but God doesn't want us serving Him out of compulsion. He doesn't want to give out of necessity. He doesn't, that's not God. He goes, look, if, if you don't want to do this, don't do it. You don't have to. It's all right. I, I can work it out in some other way. And I believe that there are a lot of people who should be living in the freedom that's in Christ. And yet, instead, we look like slaves, we act like slaves, we feel like slaves. Because somehow, the perspective is twisted. And we really believe that, it counts, that God's counting on us. And He doesn't want us to live that way. And that's a problem with the law. You can't live that way. He wants you to relax. He wants you to ease up. Now, as he talks about here, he says, uh, he who was born according to the flesh, verse 29, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. He said, going back to the Isaac and Ishmael picture, Ishmael was a little older than Isaac, and he gave him a hard time. He pick, was picking on him, making fun of him. And he said, it's the same way today. What does he mean by that? People who are under the law, people who are living in the old covenant, people who are enslaved, they desire for other people to become enslaved too. It's just, you know, okay, I'm enslaved, but I don't want to be alone. Misery loves company. And nothing will drive a slave crazier than to see free people. And so, in this case, ultimately, that was the resentment that Ishmael had for Isaac. It was ultimately what caused them to throw him out. 
But what does that have to do with us? Well, there are people today who, despite the gospel, despite the truth, they still insist on living a legalistic lifestyle. They still insist on believing that Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts. And that's fine. If you want to live that way, go ahead. But you can't live that way without putting it off on other people. There are people who believe today that legally we ought to always go to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. Now, I don't care what day you go to church. I mean, if you want, we'll leave the doors open. You can come sit in here on Saturday. But they aren't satisfied with saying, I believe that we should worship on Saturday because that's the true Sabbath. No, they've got to convince you and me that we ought to do it as well. I don't think any of us are bothered by someone who wants to worship on Saturday, by a whole church that wants to worship on Saturday. But as Paul said in Colossians, don't let anybody judge you according to Sabbath days and things like that. They're a shadow of things to come. It's not the reality. And yet legalistic people always want to bring other people under the law because legalistic people go back and forth in a pendulum. On the one hand, they obey the rules, they do pretty well, they're doing okay, and they feel good about it. And they feel better than other people. There's this superiority which causes them to look out and point the finger and judge other people who aren't living to their great standards. But the pendulum swings and a legalist will always eventually feel defeated and worthless because they fail to keep the law. And so a person who then feels shattered and worthless They've got to drag other people down to their level. So no matter where they're at, the legalist always has to impose their rules on other people because I make the rules. And it's funny, every group that's legalistic has a different set of rules. There isn't a uniformity even among Christianity. For instance, in an awful lot of churches here in the United States, people have a very strong opinion that Oh, it's wrong for Christians to drink or to smoke. Those are the maybe dance or whatever else that they aren't supposed to do. And that's, the, that's what Christianity is. That's how I'm going to define it. Then you go over to Europe, and the Christians, many of them, so many of them drink and smoke and think they're really righteous because they don't wear makeup or because the women won't wear pants. You go, where did this come from? Where is, it? Is, this, is this what the Bible is defining as Christianity? No. It's just if you want to try to be righteous, you'll have to make up some arbitrary rules. Oh, and you can argue for them, and don't come up and argue with me afterwards. All I'm saying is these are things that become artificial definitions of what it is to be spiritual. And, you know, God would say, that's not what it's about. That's not how it works. Stop acting like I'm putting burdens on you, that I'm insisting that you live a certain way. That's not Now, some of these things may be good, but we also have very clever ways of manipulating other people. For instance, I, I mean, I mentioned drinking, and I know that's a controversial topic. Well, I personally don't drink. I haven't had a drink in probably 30 years. Now, but I can say to you, but if you want to drink, it's okay. But I have my reasons for not drinking, and let me share some of those with you. And I can go down the list, and I can, I can say really what it comes down to is, I don't think the Bible absolutely forbids you from drinking, but for me personally, I want to be as close to God as I possibly can. And I just don't think you can be very close to God if you're out there drinking. So therefore, what am I saying? I just made a rule, and I made you feel like somehow you're less of a Christian than I am if you go and have a beer with lunch today or have some wine with dinner, or go get drunk out of your mind. Listen, understand this. It may be stupid, but it's not something that makes you any less righteous before God. God doesn't trip out on all of these artificial things. He wants you to see His heart. He wants you to understand how much He loves you. And then He'll take away the desire for things that you shouldn't be doing. He'll give you the desire to do the things that you should be doing. It's the new covenant. God taking His law and putting it in your heart working on you from within. But as he warns here, there will always be people who try to put you under the law because they are people who put themselves under the law and they want you to live like they are. You know, you have somebody who decides that, you know, TV is just horrible and I just think it's wrong for TV to even have it in your house. It's idolatry. 
okay, I'm not going to argue with you about it. But I have never yet met a person who got rid of their TV who didn't also want everybody else to get rid of their TVs. So if you tell me, you know, God's just showing us that TV's horrible, so we're not going to have it in their house anymore. And then I use an illustration from a TV show that just happened this week. You're going to go, oh, that really stumbles me, Pastor. Why does it stumble you? Am I the standard? Or do you have to get reinforcement on what you want to do based on what I feel led to do? I very well may be wrong to have a TV in my house. But if you don't want to have a TV, don't have a TV. But don't go tell everyone else they have to do that. It's like the people who believe that the worst thing in the world is Halloween. Oh, it's, you know, you give your kids little candy bars, they'll get possessed. And, you know, they just get all obsessed with it. If you don't want to take your kids trick-or-treating or whatever, don't. Bring them. We always have an alternative here at the church and everything. But you don't have to convince everyone else. Don't tell your kids that, see those other kids? Demons, every one of them. <laughs> I remember years ago at Calvary, we had one of our pastors who was from another area of the world that I won't mention, but his son, I guess they had really indoctrinated him pretty well about how evil Star Wars was. And so he saw a kid with a Star Wars lunch pail and he grabbed it away, and he goes, that's of Satan. And he jumped up and down and just flattened the lunch pail. It was just... <laughs> Sounds kind of silly, but the truth is, that's what we can so often do in so many different ways. It's all a smokescreen. It's all a diversion. We need to emphasize. We need to understand. We need to believe absolutely in the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that position with God has nothing to do with our do's and don'ts, has nothing to do with following the law or not. Now, obeying what God tells us to do because we love Him and, and out of gratitude, yes, that changes our lives radically. And we're going to see in the rest of the book of Galatians, he begins to talk about in the next couple of weeks, we'll see about love and the role of the fruit of the Spirit and what it is to walk in the Spirit. So don't worry, we're going to get there. But understand this, if you're trying to help God out, that's the flesh. If you're trying to be, and here's one indication again from this passage, if it just really bothers you that other people do things that you choose not to do, something's wrong. It's not your job. You're not the police of the world. Your job is to relate to God, to accept Jesus' forgiveness for you, to walk in gratitude and in freedom. And anything less than that, it's just religion. Now, your religion might be better than most. If you can argue well enough, you can probably convince people to join your religion. But you're not going to convince anyone to give their heart to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, whom the sun sets free will be free indeed. That's what he came for. But it's scary because setting people free gives up control. It gives up our power. It gives up our ability to reinforce what we believe by getting other people to do it too. But you know, that's God's job to draw people to Christ. It's not our job too, to do that. If we, I believe that if we had the walk with God that He wants us to have, if we understood the freedom that is in Jesus Christ, if we had the heart for Him, instead of wearing Him like some kind of a burden, I think people would be drawn amazingly to Jesus. As they were when Jesus was here on the earth, publicans and sinners, prostitutes and losers were drawn to Him in droves, and He didn't advertise he didn't put on a big advance campaign. There was something about Jesus. And the very fact that he would reach out to an IRS agent who was short <laughs> and, and go, hey, let me go to your house. Let's hang out a little bit. That has more power than all of the rigidity and all of the dogmatism and all of the argumentation that you'll ever go through. It's what changes us is seeing Jesus and understanding He's not hustling us for anything. He, again, so often we think of Jesus as being like Donald Trump on the beginning of The Apprentice. He comes out at the beginning of the show, gives him the assignment, and then he goes, I'll see you in the boardroom. And they have to figure out how to fulfill whatever requirement it is. And God bless you who've never seen the show, I know. But... but uh, <laughs> But that's what we think of God. We think like God comes and he goes, okay, Mr. Phelps, here's your assignment. And then I'll see you at the end. You figure out how to do it. That's not it at all. He said, you go, Lord, what do you want? 
He says, just for you to love me, I just want to be with you. I want to have a relationship with you. Well, isn't there something I can do? No, I've done it all. I paid the price already. You're free. Free? Yeah. Well, how can that be? Well, here's the thing. How can it be anything otherwise? Because we have all demonstrated our inability to make ourselves good, to become anything more than a sham. Religion ultimately will always end up in hypocrisy. See, you start out with really well-meaning. I am going to be a good person, and I'm going to follow these rules. You find out you can't do it, and now you have a choice. Are you going to admit that religion didn't work for you? Well, no, you can't do that. That might stumble other people. So instead, you just pretend like you're doing it right. You just learn to hide and build up a front and be a phony. And that's what's tragic about religion. It's so phony. Everyone knows deep down inside that we're all the same. But somehow we think we need to keep up and act. Why? Well, because we believe somehow that this is something we have to do. We think we're helping God. The truth is, He doesn't need our help. The truth is, we don't need to be enslaved. Now, God doesn't want you to be enslaved to habits that destroy you, but He also doesn't want you to be enslaved to some artificial, phony notion of what you're supposed to be like in order to impress God. Think about this. God sees your heart. He knows everything you've ever thought or imagined. Do you think He's impressed? He's like, he knows you. You don't have to fake it with him. And the burden of religion, in the same way as the burden of trying to fulfill your life in the flesh in any other way, it weighs you down. Look at people who are just pursuing the flesh in order to fulfill their lives. Go hang out sometime in front of a bar at happy hour and ask yourself, do these people look really happy? Hey, the two most miserable-looking groups of people you'll probably find in the world are people at happy hour and people in church. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Pick your religion. It doesn't work. The only real joy comes when we understand God took care of it. Jesus Christ died for us. Our sins can be forgiven if we just give it to Him and trust Him. A new life, a glorious life. Oh, I know that sounds very risky, But it's not as risky as the alternative to think you can do it on your own. You can't. I can't. No one can. The gospel, it's great news. You can't do it, so he did. He did it. It happened on the cross. It's his promise for eternity. And now we don't need to be children of bondage. We can be children of freedom. Now we don't have to make it happen in the flesh. But we can have the Spirit of God working inside of our lives helping us to become the people that, well, He promised He would do it. He promised He would give us above what we could ask or think. So are we going to trust Him enough to let Him do it? Can you let go of your own righteousness long enough to just see what He does in your life? Put the rule book away and meet Him and walk with Him and allow Him to minister to you. All bets are off about the past. I'm not going to worry about pleasing others. I'm only going to please God. And what God says He's pleased with is if I just love Him, He'll take care of the rest. He will clothe me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So He says, what does the Scripture say? And it's a quote from Sarah. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Kind of a cold-hearted thing to do in a way, but it was true. You cannot mix Isaac and Ishmael. It wasn't going to work. It hasn't worked ever since. And so a decision has to be made to say, I am not going to allow Ishmael to live under my roof. And that's the same decision that we all need to make. And and I believe we have to make it almost on a daily basis. I am not going to be religious. I am not going to just live by some artificial expectation. I'm not going to think that somehow I'm good enough. There's no place for that. Throw out the law. Throw out the notion that you're enough and understand there's a freedom that comes from that and it's a a glorious freedom and it's the only thing that you can ultimately live with. The only option is to just become a phony. Just start to fake it. You can do that too if you want and eventually it means nothing. Now, there are days 
when I start out in the Spirit, towards the end of the day, I'm just doing it because I have to do it. There are days when, oh, I just, you know, I open up the Bible in the morning and God's just speaking to me and it's awesome. And a little later, I start thinking, oh, shoot, I have to speak somewhere tomorrow morning. I've got to do this. We need to constantly be going through the process of throwing out the slave, accepting the work of Jesus Christ in our life, the good news. And so, then, brethren, verse 31, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. That's who we are if we are brothers in Christ. If Jesus Christ has saved us, we're free. And that's a good thing. That's great news. It's not good news to say, well, congratulations, now you're a slave. In the Bible, it talks about being bondservants of Jesus Christ. The word doesn't mean a slave. A bondservant was someone who had their, their freedom had been paid for, and now they said, can I still hang out here and work with you? And that's where we are. Yeah, we're servants, but because we choose to be. We get to be with Him. He will do the work in our lives. Our, our freedom has been purchased already. We've been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. If we want to, we can go through life carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And if we want to, we can release it to Him and understand how free we really are. And that's what He wants for us. And it's great news that He provides it for us. The alternative is religion. Go ahead and pick one. It's only a relationship with Jesus Christ that will really scratch you where you itch, that will really fill that emptiness that's inside you. And I'm so grateful that He found me before I found Him. I'm so grateful that He took care of my sin. I want to learn not to judge other people for their sins, to remember that, you know, I got a free deal, so why should I think I'm better than you? And to give people the notion the declaration to shout for joy and say, man, I got good news for you. You're covered. It's taken care of. It's already paid for. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are that you've got us covered, that your righteousness clothes us, that your death paid the penalty for our sin, that sin that, that should have been the end of us, you paid for it, and you freely set us free. God, help us to walk in your freedom. Help us to not choose to live the life of those who are enslaved to the flesh, those who are just trying to do things that we think will fulfill us, and really they don't. They're just destroying us. Or those who think that we're so past that that now we're just really good people on our own. Help us to see you. Help us to receive only the righteousness that is of God by faith. Help us to know you to the point where we feel free. We understand the burden has been lifted. Oh, God, you're so good to us. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.